Welcome to Table Lore, a storytelling podcast providing background lore for tabletop role-playing games or a podcast to fall asleep to. Whatever brings you here, we're just glad you're here. I'm your co-host, Megan. And I'm your other co-host, Cass. Before we begin, remember that Table Lore is a fictional storytelling podcast, and while sometimes we will explore real legends, nothing we say should be treated as fact. Our stories center on the strange and unexplainable, but sometimes they are more horror-based. Audience discretion is advised. This week, we're going to New Hampshire. Why are you saying howdy? It's a pleasant salutation. I've never once heard you use howdy as a salutation. Well, howdy there, partner. Okay. Hi. Hello. How are you? I'm I'm having a great Monday morning. How are you? I'm uh, very pleasant. Thank you. Mm, pleasant pleasantries are being exchanged. Yeah. I'm glad to not be sitting in a car today. I am also glad to not be in a car today. We just spent the last week on a Midwestern road trip. Anything to report? Um, No, I can't report anything because we fell in love with a place and I want to keep it a secret for me. So I can't tell anybody about it. Oh, yeah, no, we did fall in love with the place, but we don't want anybody else to know about it. Yeah, we want to live there and keep it very safe and tucked away from the rest of the world. I think all eight of our listeners would probably keep that secret for us. Yeah, but, you know, you can't really ever trust anybody. Ah, this week on Cass's Trust Issues. I don't have trust issues. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this week we're going to be in New Hampshire which is the granite state because i guess a lot of the granite is there oh like all of our i don't think granite countertops are really the fashion anymore but when they were the fashion did it all come from new hampshire um i can say with 100 percent certainty that i don't know but nice new hampshire is the granite state and so it's in New England, so kind of that Upper East part of the United States, and bordering, fun fact, borders Quebec, where my mom was born. So, mm, Yes, Cass is Canadian, in case nobody's known that yet. I don't think we've ever talked about it, but yeah. So I've actually never been, though, to New Hampshire. Neither have I. I would like to. It sounds very beautiful. Yeah old and haunted for sure oh definitely old and haunted that's like the majority of the folklore we found was haunting all of new england is gonna be insanely haunted yeah so put me up in a modern hotel but not some ancient haunted b&b oh i'd rather stay in the b&b and get haunted well hopefully not by mean ghosts Oh, but by a really nice, friendly ghost? 
yeah, like Casper, the friendly ghost. <laughs> okay, well, best of luck. <laughs> I'll be at the... Oh, with my other husband? Yeah, I'll be at the Marriott by myself. Okay, so <laughs> good to know. I'm sure there's lots of witchcraft. No, there's only been one person ever accused and tried of witchcraft in the history of New Hampshire. Oh, that's an extremely specific fact that you know well a lot of my research mentioned this this woman whose name was eunice cole but she went by the name goody which i think maybe is charming but maybe it was also sarcastic she was the only one person tried of witchcraft in new hampshire in all of its history but she was tried three times and probably because she was just kind of like a mean-spirited or kind of cantankerous and lively woman. Even though her name is Goody? See, and that's why I don't know if that's like a sarcastic nickname. I think that's like a stereotype about witches. I don't think all witches are mean and scary. And nope. In fact, I think a lot of witches are probably very nice and pleasant. Well, she wasn't ever actually a witch. Her, her neighbors and her community just didn't like her. So on three separate occasions, oh, they accused her of being a witch and she went on trial, but she was acquitted every time but you know still spent time in prison because that's fair wow yeah bad day to be eunice yeah bad bad couple of years in the 1600s well so it's not 1600 now but our story today is going to be set in 2011 megan what were you doing in 2011 uh in 2011 megan was in high school just cruising around uh what were the fashion trends in 2011 Ooh, like feathers in the I hair i think it thing. was like skinny jeans were peplum t-shirts the thing in 2011 or was that later that sounds right or like and like like big chunky necklaces i remember the wraparound scarves infinity scarves that might have still been 2011 yeah feel like that was during high school for me too i honestly don't remember much of 2011 maybe you weren't very fashionable in 2011 i probably wasn't um (laughs) several several i had several questionable fashion choices that were made in high school which is unfortunate it's okay i think that's pretty par for the course in terms of high school experiences probably yeah we're going to a sleepover in our episode so what do you pack for a 2011 sleepover Cass? me i probably would have just emptied out my school backpack and then threw in my pajamas and my toothbrush and probably about called it good not bringing any special comforting trinket or snack no uh Definitely not. Actually, maybe my own pillow and sleeping bag. I feel like that was still I would have absolutely brought my own pillow mm-hmm. and probably my own sleeping bag. Yeah. But this episode made me very nostalgic for my friend group in high school. So I was thinking about them while we wrote this. Yeah. Shout out to all the homies from high school. <laughs> absolutely all of Cass's old high school homies from Blaine, Minnesota. Today's episode features three separate tales, the last of which is based on real lore from New Hampshire, the county, the country tavern, which is located in Nashua, 
in the southeastern corner of the state. We've adopted the story a little bit, but if you're interested in learning more about the legend of Captain Ford and his wife, look up Country Tavern. I, as I was researching the story, I learned that this historic building was sadly torn down about a month ago, but the hauntings just may continue. They just might. Who's to say? Not me. Let's just dive right on into it, Cass. You okay. want to get us going? I would love to get us going. Charlie's Forest Green Subaru Outback a recent 16th birthday present, pulls up the long driveway of Danny's house. After they had passed their driver's test, Charlie's dad had insisted that Charlie could choose any car they wanted, and Charlie insisted on an Outback, even if it wasn't as flashy as their friend's new cars, which they see are already here. Yasmin's shiny silver Volvo, Charlie's blue BMW, Sammy's custom yellow Lexus, and Emma's beast of a Land Rover. Charlie parks next to the Volvo and tosses their Patagonia duffel bag over their shoulder and grabs the plastic bags from Hannaford's full of Cheetos, Jell-O cups, and various chocolate bars from the passenger seat. They get the 24 case of Mountain Dew out from the trunk and struggle a bit with their full mittened hands to get the car locked. It's cold outside and the heavy gray clouds overhead threaten to let loose a punishment of snow. When the weather anchor warned about an impending nor'easter tonight, Charlie's best friend group chat exploded with texts about sleeping over at someone's house and experiencing the storm together. They didn't need an excuse to hang out since it was winter break from school, but it was nice to have one anyway. Charlie even packed an extra change of clothes in case they were forced to hunker down for longer than one night at Danny's house. Charlie's one prepared human being. Well, yeah, you got to be kind of prepared for anything at these sleepovers. I I particularly appreciate the foresight to bring an extra change of clothes. That would not have been packed in Megan's 2011 sleepover bag. Well, there's not not a lot of chance for blizzards in Arizona for Megan in high school. That is true. That's a good point. Charlie's boots crunched pleasantly on the salt that Danny's dad had already preemptively sprinkled across the wide, shallow concrete steps that led up to the huge, ornately carved wooden front door. The landscaping around the front of the house had been tastefully decorated with lights for the season, which were already twinkling in the dark, despite it being barely 5 p.m., Danny's nearly 300-year-old house always looked postcard-ready, but especially during the winter. The historic charm had a lot of curb appeal and was just as stunning inside, even if it was a little bit haunted. The front door is unlocked, and Charlie knows to just walk right in and lock it behind them since they were the last to arrive. Danny's house would be intimidating to navigate as a newcomer, but Charlie knows exactly where to go and kicks off their boots hurriedly before shuffling on wool socks to the large main living room where their friends have certainly set up for the night. Charlie is met with the warmth and crackle of a roaring fire and cheers of Charlie's here from the gaggle of teenagers huddled together on the massive leather sectional. Danny jumps up and gives Charlie a big squeeze. Oh my God, thank you for bringing all this, she beams relieving Charlie of the grocery bags and case of soda, placing it on the bar top. She rips open the cardboard and places some cans into the mini fridge behind the bar. 
You're just in time to help us decide which movie to watch, calls Emma from the sofa, her hair in a messy bun, body nestled under a huge cashmere blanket. We've been arguing over Krampus or Ginger Dead Man for the past 15 minutes, she elbows Sammy playfully beside her. Hey, I just think that a German nightmare cryptid is clearly the more interesting concept. Sammy defends himself. Plus, I think my, like, great-great-grandparents are German, so it's, like, culturally significant. I think we should watch Dumb and Dumber if you want something culturally significant to you, Sammy. Yasmin teases, and the group descends into laughter. No, no, you're right. You got me there, Sammy replies, taking his glasses off to wipe away tears. Okay, so definitely Ginger Dead Man then, right? Charlie decides. And then Krampus tomorrow night, if we're lucky enough to get snowed in for that long. Bags of chips are torn open and cans of Mountain Dew are cracked as the five best friends settle in to enjoy the Christmas-themed horror film. The end credits to the cheesy slasher fic begin rolling on the massive television screen. And Sammy states, I can't believe how bad that was. I told you it should have been Krampus. It was so bad. It was almost good though, right? Danny defends. I think we should find the ashes of a serial killer and mix them into some cookies ourselves. It's time for a reboot, Emma jokes. No way, dude. We can tell a way better story than that, Charlie responds. Yeah, you know what? We should have a contest, Yasmin chimes in. Emma and Sammy, you be the judges, and Charlie, Danny, and I will see who can tell the scariest story. You guys know I don't actually like horror stuff the way you do, right? Sammy asks, pulling the blanket up over his head. It's okay, Sammy. You can hold me if you get too scared, Emma promises, patting the top of blanket Sammy's head. Charlie starts on the first story of the night. Okay, I heard this story for the first time when I was at camp the summer before sixth grade. It really freaked me out, and I think I was too young to hear it, so now I get to traumatize all of you with it. Not very long ago, a man named Justin lived alone with his dog, a beagle mix named Kipo, in a nice townhouse by the seashore. Justin was a young man, early in his career, but very successful. He loved his life, his job, and his many good friends. One evening, he got back from work around 6 o'clock per usual and hung up his keys on the hook by the door. He took off his jacket and hung it up neatly in the entryway closet and carefully put his shoes on the shoe rack and closed the closet door. Around 6.30, he made himself some food, spaghetti and meatballs, and gave his beloved dog, Kipo, some kibble and a meatball as an extra special treat before sitting down at his small table to eat. After dinner, Justin and Kipo cuddled together on the couch and watched the nightly news. He was pretty tired from work and fell asleep on the couch until he woke up to the sound of distant thunder and the Tonight Show playing on the TV. He checked the time on his phone, 11.45, and decided he should get himself to bed. Kipo followed him up the stairs and plopped down on the blue dog bed that lay on the floor right next to Justin's bed. Kipo had never outgrown the dog bed that Justin's mom bought for him when Justin adopted Kipo as a puppy, and the dog slept there every night of his life. After he brushed his teeth and took out his contacts, Justin crawled into bed and completed his nightly ritual by reaching his hand down for Kipo to lick goodnight, just as he always did.
Justin drifted off to sleep and was startled awake by a loud thump from downstairs. His first thought is that it must be Kipo getting into something, which is odd because he is a well-behaved dog. Justin groggily reaches his hand down to Kipo's bed to double-check and feels a little lick on his fingers. He quickly sits up, a little worried that Kipo is still here and is not the source of the downstairs noise. He flicks the switch on his bedside lamp, but it does not illuminate. Groaning, he fumbles out of bed and grabs the flashlight his dad insisted he keep in his nightstand drawer for times just like these. As Justin approaches his bedroom door, he notices that it is raining outside and wonders whether the weather is the cause of his electricity problem. He flips his bedroom light switch on, but it doesn't turn on. Stupid rain, he mutters to himself as he clicks on the flashlight, heading down the short flight of stairs. He figures that the thump he heard was something that had gotten caught up in the wind and rain and blew into a window or his sliding glass door. When he gets downstairs, he shines the flashlight onto the patio, but nothing is there. He walks around the kitchen, dining room, and living room, shining his flashlight through the other windows to see if anything is on the ground outside. The last window he checks is the front window, once again finding nothing on the ground outside of it. He sighs and turns around, ready to get back into his warm bed, and notices that the entry closet door is slightly ajar. He pushes it gently with his hand, but is met with resistance. He pushes a little harder, but the door does not budge. Stupid jacket sleeve, he says out loud before pulling the door open, knowing that he will find his jacket caught on the hinge. He does find his jacket in the closet. It is hanging exactly where he put it earlier this evening. But that's not all that was in the closet. Justin stood frozen, shining the flashlight down on the body of his beloved Kipo. An unmoving front paw, not quite all the way in the closet, had prevented it from closing properly. Justin knelt down and placed his hand on Kipo's flank, cold and stiff, dead. Justin could feel his heart beat in his ears as panic flooded him. If Kipo was dead in the closet, what had licked his hand when he woke up? Charlie notices tears in the eyes of their friends and decides to just end their story there. They had never forgotten the first time they heard this story, and it still sometimes gives them the creeps to open up closet doors. Charlie challenges the next storytellers by saying no one could possibly beat that. But Yasmin snickers and announces she definitely can. There's a rumor in town, Yasmin begins, about an old country road, gated and closed to the public ages ago. It said that anyone traveling that road around 1 a.m. has never been seen or heard from again, that something snatched or murdered any unlucky traveler out that late. In the 80s, it became such a problem that two cops would be posted there every night waiting to catch whoever or whatever was kidnapping all these people. At that time, the count was 20. Their cars would be left on the road, abandoned, some even with the key still in the ignition. The most haunting disappearance is that of 15-year-old Stacy Trimbley, a local teen biking home from a babysitting job who took Country Road 83 as a shortcut home. The two cops stationed on the road neglected to notice the young girl bike right past them, and the town never forgave them for it. 
The next morning, they found her bike, broken and bent out of shape, in the middle of the road, the front tires spinning in the breeze. Everyone came out to help search the surrounding forest for her, spending a total of 52 hours before the last search party went home. There was absolutely no trace of Stacy anywhere. Missing posters lined the streets and decorated every window in town, not just of Stacy, but of all the missing children and adults from Nashua, New Hampshire. Only one body was ever recovered, the body of Thomas Crawford, a 43-year-old man who had been missing for seven months. Two hikers discovered the body at the peak of Mount Cahaden in Maine, nearly 350 miles away. No one could explain how the man got there, nor could they explain the injuries found on his body. His body had seemingly dropped out of the sky, coroners finding injuries similar to that of falling off a hundred-foot cliff. His feet, however, had been cut clean off his body and were never found. What had happened to him appeared to be gruesome, and everyone feared the worst for the rest of their beloved townsfolk who were missing. Once the road shut down, the disappearances stopped, but no one besides Thomas has ever been found. There are some who claim to have traveled the road and survived, but the only real way to find out the truth is to visit yourself. Yasmin concludes her story and looks around at the others who are in various stages of shock. Sammy has his knees tucked tightly to his chest and the hood of his sweatshirt tightened close around his face, staring straight at the fire. His fingers tap rapidly against his calves, revealing his anxiety. Dude, did that really happen? Danny asks, almost too excitedly. Yasmin simply shakes her head yes, then reveals that her dad was part of Stacy's search party. The eerie, unsolved mystery still rattled the town, but the friends all wondered why they had never heard the story before. Until then. Some stories are too gruesome to repeat, I guess, Yasmin suggests. Danny perks up. Well, if gruesome is what you want. Sammy moans, as though he was deeply uncomfortable by the storytelling. Emma grabbed one of Sammy's clammy hands, and they each braced themselves for Danny's story. In 1741, the young Captain Ford left his wife Elizabeth to travel the seas. He had labored intensely over the construction of his new home, so his wife would have someplace comfortable to stay. Newlyweds, Elizabeth and the captain were childless, and Elizabeth felt a deep loneliness without her husband there to keep her company. She wandered the many hallways of the 5,600-square-foot home, and spent a lot of time sitting at her vanity, staring into her reflection to pretend she wasn't alone. After a few months, she began to venture into town with her lady's maid, Anna. The pair would visit the ribbon and lace shops in hopes of constructing beautiful new gowns with the money Captain Ford would return from sea with, and they dreamt of the balls and dinner parties Elizabeth would surely attend. Without her husband, she never received invitations to these events, which sunk her spirits even further. On one of their now daily outings, Elizabeth met a young tailor named James, and the two were smitten. Though their feelings and their curiosity were forbidden, they began a secret romance that ended with Elizabeth pregnant and alone again. James had run the moment Elizabeth, panicked but excited, told him she was with child, which broke her heart in ways she didn't know could be broken. 
The outings ended and Elizabeth hid in the home built by her husband while she waited for her child to be born. Believing her husband to be naive enough not to notice the baby would be too young to be his, she began to write her husband about a birth that had not yet occurred, telling him how the baby, a boy, looked just like him, with the similar dark green eyes and head full of blonde hair. It was Elizabeth who was too naive, which she realized when a small, five-pound, black-haired baby girl was placed in her arms after she painfully labored for 12 hours. Perhaps my husband never read my letters, she hoped to herself. Elizabeth feared her husband's return, while her heart grew and grew with love for her child, Hannah, named after a friend from her youth. Captain Ford returned after two years of travels, excited to meet his son, only to discover the truth. An infant girl, bearing no resemblance to himself, asleep in a bastinet next to his unfaithful wife. It filled him with rage. His cheeks burned brick red and the vein in his forehead, the same one Elizabeth liked to trace with her finger, looked ready to burst. She knew this was coming, but rather than explaining or trying to reason with him, she stayed put in her rocking chair and allowed him to express his rage and voice his betrayal. He spat in her face and gripped her shoulders, his rough nails cutting into her skin. I'm going to kill you, he growled. Elizabeth's maid, Anna, ran to her defense, and the captain threw her aside, knocking her unconscious. Elizabeth leapt out of her chair, ready to run, but Captain Ford caught her, and with the knife tucked under his belt, stabbed her in the gut. She fell to her knees and watched as her husband murdered her baby in front of her, unable to defend or prevent the horror she witnessed. She shouted for help, but help never came. Her husband stabbed her three times more before she managed to stand back up and run towards the door. Weakened and slower than usual, she ran into the yard towards the forest, praying help could be found. Her husband trailed behind her, walking towards the dying woman. At the edge of the property, a stone well used to be the source of water for the homestead. Today it sits empty, but every night the ghost of Elizabeth Ford rises from the bottom, where her husband tossed her dying body all those years ago. Those who have witnessed the ghost of Elizabeth claim she is searching for her lost child, crying for her, willing to do anything to find her. To some, she is a shadow in a mirror. To others, she is a trickster, moving objects, following people. Some women have even reported feeling her ghostly hands play with their hair, something she was never able to do with her daughter. Through the years, she has made her chilling appearances. I've even seen her once. Maybe you will, too, if you're lucky. Danny! Girl, I always knew your house was haunted, but you've never told us it's that haunted, Yasmin exclaims. Danny laughs a little, then gets quiet. The truth is, she's always been a little too scared of that story to tell it. It's so tragic, and so creepy. She was worried that by speaking all the words out loud, she would practically be begging the ghost to come find her. There have been a few times where Danny could swear she has seen the ghost. Her sister has, too. But her parents never believed them, of course. Her mom thinks the house is too charming to be haunted, but she's never slept in Danny's attic bedroom before. 
So, Emma, Sammy, you're the judges. Who wins? Charlie asked hurriedly. Emma thinks for a moment, then announces that Yasmin wins, because it's the only reasonable story. The others, she claims, are too fictional to be real. Sammy states that nobody is a winner and that he is the biggest loser here because he had to listen to all these terrible stories. Charlie and Danny argue with Emma before conceding and moving on, deciding to watch another movie. The friends decide on The Lodge since they haven't had enough horror for that evening yet. By the end of the movie, Sammy, Emma, and Yasmin are fast asleep. Snow is falling heavily outside the massive windows in the living room. Danny gets up to turn the movie off and puts another log on the fire, while Charlie walks down the hallway to the bathroom. As they're washing their hands, they catch a glimpse of something behind them in the mirror. When they turn to look for it, all they see is a foggy handprint left on the window pane, a handprint that barely looked human. Well, wait, that's, that's it. That's it. You're just going to leave us there. I got to leave you hanging, and then the good people out there can continue the story. But what is this handprint? I don't know. Is it the ghost? Is it the boogeyman from Justin's bed? Is it the thing that's been snatching people in Nashua? I don't know. What really could be any one of those things? Or something else entirely. This one was pretty fun. Yeah, I liked this one. It made me very nostalgic. Yeah. I remember distinctly watching a very, very too scary movie for us in my best friend's living room at night and her parents weren't home. And we were freaked out. So this was very nostalgic. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty brave of you. It is, considering I don't like, like, actually scary things. (laughs) That's not true. You've made me watch many scary movies. I've made you watch the classic It, which is just about as scary as our podcast is. You've made me watch more than just It. Oh, okay. (laughs) But that's okay. I love you anyways. (laughs) Thank goodness. So we mentioned at the top of the episode that one of our stories was based off of real lore. So just as a reminder that if you want to learn more about Danny's story about Captain Ford and his wife Elizabeth, you can Google the Country Tavern in Nashua, New Hampshire to learn all about the ghostly hauntings. You know, I really think that we are pronouncing Nashua correctly, but if we're not, that would be funny. Is it Nashua? It could be Nashua. Yeah. If you're from New Hampshire, let us know. (laughs) Let us know, please. Well, that is all that we have for you today. Yeah, and so now it's time to... Roll the D100? Yes, please. All right, let's get this chunky guy out here. If you've never seen a D100 in real life or held one, I highly recommend that you do immediately. Okay. Here we go. You ready? I'm so ready. Okay, here we go. Mm, 76. 76 takes us to Pennsylvania. Oh, great. The Keystone State. As always, stick around for some gameplay suggestions. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and follow us on any of our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We post the occasional update. You can also follow along on our website, 
which is www.tablelorepodcast.com. See you next week. Bye. Okay, storytellers, now it's your turn to create the rest of the story. Roll a d6 for inspiration about how to continue the story. If you roll a 1 or 2, you and your party play as the teenage friend group and decide how gruesome things get. Continue telling the story of what the friends experienced during their snowy sleepover. What created that handprint in the window that Charlie saw? Will the teens make it out alive, or will their fate be the same as every other cheesy teen slasher? If you roll a 3 or a 4, you and your party play as townsfolk who are experiencing what Yasmin told in her story. People are going missing every day, and only one body has been found. What is responsible for these disappearances? Figure it out and defeat the monster that has been gripping this town with fear. If you roll a 5 or 6, you and your party play as a group of supernatural investigators who are called on by the owners of Danny's house to investigate paranormal occurrences that are disturbing them. What do you find out about the ghost of Elizabeth? Can you find a way to defeat or placate her?